This morning's scripture is John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, which can be found in the Black Bibles on page 882. But first, let's pray together. O Lord, our God, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. We come to thee with joy in our hearts as we experience anew the mystery and power of the resurrection of your beloved Son. Let us join with Mary and the two disciples as they discover the empty tomb. But let us linger with Mary, sharing her grief, unwilling to depart, so that we too may encounter our risen Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, 
because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If your uh, Bibles are not open today to page 882, you'll want to open them up as we take a close uh, look at this passage today. On this Easter Sunday, uh, we are celebrating uh, the Christian belief that 2,000 years ago, a dead man came back to life. It also happens to be April Fool's Day, and we can say one thing for certain is that the earliest Christians did not believe that the resurrection was some kind of April Fool's prank. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't some funny things, even in this passage that we just heard, uh, in these accounts of the resurrection. Like, for example, when Mary uh, mistakes Jesus for the gardener, there's something humorous about that. But what's absolutely clear is that Jesus doesn't say to Mary, I wasn't really dead, April Fool's. The Bible teaches that Jesus really died and that he really rose again on the third day. And this went against all expectation. There there was no large group gathering at the tomb on that first Easter morning waiting for Jesus to come out. Only a few women coming to pray or perhaps to add some more spices to a, a dead, stinking body. And we see Mary's initial belief or, or her lack of it in what she says over and over again in response to the missing body of Jesus. In verse 2, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Or verse 13, now in the face of angels, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And then verse 15, in the face of Jesus himself, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And so if you're here this morning and you don't believe the Christian message, or you're wrestling with doubt, you're in good company. Because it turns out that Mary and the other disciples didn't believe it at first either. Something had to change for Mary to believe. And notice, not just in the evidence that she was given, she could stand there right in front of Jesus and not see him for who he was. But something had to change inside of her. So this is what we want to consider this morning. The the Christian claim about the resurrection is a historical one, so it matters if it really happened or not. But we also want to consider what needs to change inside of us if we're really to receive it. We want to consider some reasons to believe it, but this is just the beginning. Because if it's true, it changes everything for our world, and for you and for for me personally. So three things today. The resurrection is historical. The resurrection is cosmic. It has implications for everything. And the resurrection is personal. 
So first, the, the resurrection is historical. Why should you believe these accounts of the resurrection like the one we read this morning? And there are three reasons. First, because the stories of the resurrection in the New Testament have all the marks of eyewitness testimony. Notice the repetition of verbs recite in John 20. In verse 1, Mary came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. In verse 5, uh, the disciple bent down to look in the tomb. In verse 6, uh, Peter saw the linen wrappings lying there. In verse 8, uh, the other disciple uh, went in and saw and believed. In verse 11, uh, Mary bends over to look into the tomb. In verse 12, she sees two angels. In verse 14, she sees Jesus. And then she says to the other disciples in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. (coughs) What was seen is clearly very important to John. The British New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham has studied texts like these And he's concluded that the the references to sight here are very intentional. The gospel authors wanted to preserve for future generations the, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and others who had heard and and seen Jesus. One of the the marks of this kind of oral history, Bacham says, is details in these stories that seem that appear to be irrelevant. So, for example, in verse 4, when the two disciples are running to the tomb, it says, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. They're running together, and and one runs ahead of the other and, and reaches the tomb first. Why are we told this? I mean, there's no narrative purpose in it. It doesn't add anything to the story. It doesn't appear to be symbolic in some way. The best explanation is it just happened this way, and this detail of what transpired on that, on that morning found its way into John's recollection and his telling of the story. We see something similar in, in verses 5 and 7. In verse 5, the first disciple looks into the tomb and sees the linen wrappings lying there. And then in verse 7, Peter goes inside and he sees the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. The the wrappings around the body and, and the wrappings around the head had been folded up and put in different places. Again, the these apparently irrelevant details about where the grave cloths were placed reflect the memories of those who were there. But you might raise an objection. You could say, well, that's just realistic fiction. Haven't haven't we all read stories with imaginative details like these? Yes, but the problem is these kinds of stories didn't exist in the first century. The modern novel, with the goal of mimicking reality, it was really only developed in the last 300 years. 
So C.S. Lewis, who was a world-class literary critic, said about the Gospels, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reporting history, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. So that's the first reason why you should believe these accounts, that that the resurrection happened, because there were eyewitness, it, it has all the signs of eyewitness testimony, but the second reason you should believe the Bible's claim about the resurrection is it's not just one gospel, or all four of the gospels that claim it. We find this claim that Jesus was risen, not only in the gospels, but in the, the earliest documents of the New Testament, in Paul's letters. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes just 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is like someone writing today about something that happened in the year 2000. Someone trying to debunk, uh, you know, uh, stories about 9-11 that it, it really didn't happen. And Paul can write, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So as Paul writes in this letter, he's clear that the resurrection happened on the third day. In other words, it's, it's a historical event, not, not just symbolic. And he lists the different people to whom Jesus appeared, many of whom, he says, are still alive. Again, he points to living eyewitnesses. In effect, Paul is inviting anyone who might have been skeptical as they listened to this letter to seek out these people and and to ask them, did this really happen? They were there and they could be asked. Finally, The third reason you should believe these these eyewitness accounts is because the disciples would never have made up the story this way. In all of the gospel accounts, the first witnesses of the resurrection are always women. And you wouldn't have made it up this way in the first century when women, unfortunately, were not trusted as reliable. They could not be witnesses in court. And yet Jesus chooses the women to be the proclaimers of the gospel to the other apostles. They are the, the apostles to the apostles. As N.T. Wright says in his massive study of the resurrection, if you were a follower of a dead Jesus in the middle of the first century, wanting to explain why you still thought that he was important and why some of your number had begun to say that he had been raised from the dead, you would have not have told stories like this. You would have done a better job. So the disciples were not creating something to fit their preconceived ideas about what had to happen. None of them expected it. 
And they didn't tell the stories in a way that would fool uh, those living with them in the first century. But when they did believe, when they were convinced, they had to ask, what does this mean? John 20, verses 8 and 9, give us a good picture of what was happening. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They believed before they understood. But with the resurrection as their starting point, they began to rethink everything else, from the cosmos to their own experience. Let let me explain. First, let's consider the cosmic dimensions of the resurrection. Really, the, the Apostle John has been making this point since the very first words of his gospel, when he echoed Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. And just as God's first words in the Bible are, are let there be light, the Gospel of John says in, in chapter 1, verse 9, the true light that gave, that gave light to everyone was coming into the world. And John picks up on this same theme, echoing back to the original creation in, in chapter 20. He's sure to tell us in verse 1 that Mary arrives at the tomb in darkness. He's setting the scene. He, he wants us to see Christ as a light shining in darkness. Notice that he also says that it was the first day of the week. So Jesus rested in the tomb on the Jewish Sabbath on the seventh day, but he rises on the first day of the week. He wants us to see the resurrection as the beginning of a, of a whole new creation. Notice he, he also emphasizes that all of this is happening in a garden. Already in, in chapter 19, we're told that the tomb was in a garden, and now he includes this, this wonderful, slightly humorous detail that Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. Just as evil and sin entered the world in a garden in Genesis 3, now restoration comes in a garden. It's a a reversal of the fall. Theologian uh, Leslie Newbegin describes the cosmic significance of the resurrection like this. He says, What happened on Easter Day is only to be understood by analogy with what happened on the day the cosmos came into being. It's a boundary event. At the point where cosmologists tell us the laws of physics cease to apply. It's the beginning of a new creation, as mysterious to human reason as the creation itself. But, and this is the whole point, accepted in faith, it becomes the starting point for a whole new way of understanding our human experience. See what he's saying? That if this is true, that if you accept this, even by faith, as we accept the existence of, of, 
of creation itself. If the resurrection is the dawn of a new creation, then it's not just some private religious experience. It has everything to do with our daily lives and with how we live. This is what we're going to be exploring in the, in the coming weeks. Mike and I will be pre- preaching a, a series of sermons that we're calling All Things New, where we're going to consider what does it mean to live in the light of the resurrection in every area of life, in community, in creation care, in culture, in work, more. What we're going to see is that the death and resurrection of Jesus gives us a new starting point for all of these challenges. That if we believe this, that we approach the world differently. Because Jesus is risen, we can know that it's not just up to us to make the world a better place, but God the Father is committed to renewing the world, and he is at work. We see this in Jesus' words to Mary in in verse 17, which at first seemed strange, but they, they show us the heart of God's commitment to renewal. He says, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is is making clear that, that a new reality has begun. This is not just a return to the past and to the experience that Mary and the others had of Jesus before his death. He's saying, do not hold on to me as I am in this moment because a new reality is coming into being. What's that new reality? What's at the heart of this new creation that we've been talking about? We see it here. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God as my Father, But here, for the first time, he invites the disciples into the intimacy of that relationship. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You see, if we're meant to see this garden scene as a reversal of the fall in the Garden of Eden, then the presence of God that has been lost to humanity through Adam and Eve's sin has now been restored in Jesus. My Father and your Father. My God and your God. This brings us to our our final point. The resurrection is not only historical, a real victory over death, It's not only cosmic, signaling the the beginning of a a new creation. The resurrection is also personal. We see this beautifully presented in in Mary's encounter with Jesus. Up until verse 16, Mary is a convinced skeptic. She has one story, and she's sticking to it. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Even in the face of Jesus, that's her story. Something has to change for her. 
not just on the outside, but, but on the inside. And what changes her? It's one thing. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. He speaks her name. You know, it, it would have been easy, I imagine, for the early Christians to, to write this story differently. They, they could have written it in such a way that they're, that they're a lot more heroic. That's what I would have done. If I were writing the story, as a pastor, I would lead an early sunrise service there at the tomb as we gathered to watch Jesus emerge. But, but this isn't what they wrote. In fact, they're remarkably honest about their doubts and their fears. Later in John 20, on, on the evening of this first day, the disciples are, are still in hiding and afraid. Then Thomas is doubting and uncertain. Over and over again, we see that this is not a story of spiritual people who are ready to embrace the risen Jesus. It's not a story of smart people who are able to figure it out on their own and discover who God is. This is a story of doubting, uncertain, confused, broken disciples whom Jesus moves towards whom he questions, why are you weeping? And whom he names. Jesus said to her, Mary. Why was this moment so powerful? I think it's because here we see something of, of the deepest longings of our hearts. In the midst of our tears, in our confusion, in our doubt, we long to be known and seen. The poet Marie Howe recently led an event in New York City at Grand Central Terminal called The Poet Is In. It took place in the Grand Central Hall of the train station where there's a giant clock right in the middle. And next to the clock, from 11 in the morning... Until eight at night, Marie Howe and other poets sat at desks with typewriters. And the public was invited to sit in front of a poet, share a few details of their life, and then receive a personalized poem. There was something powerful about this experience for people. Uh, here's how Marie Howe described the project in a recent interview. There were six poets that changed every hour, so you could come and sit down and talk with the poet, and the poet would write you a poem after talking with you. The line of people waiting for a poem was an hour and a half long, and people waited an hour and a half. It was so amazing. You would ask lots of questions, and then you would take their answers and transform them and give it back. You would type it out on the typewriter, stamp it, sign it, and read it to the person. People cried all the time. The person cried, the, the poet cried, and then you would give them the poet, then you would give them the poem for free. I want to do this all over the country. I think we're not used to being heard. We're not used to someone listening to us. 
and somehow transforming what we said to them and, and giving it back in a way that only poetry can do. It, it's so startling. Now consider this. If this is our experience, in the span of just a few moments with a stranger who sits across from us at a desk and writes a few words directed to us in our experience, what would it be like to stand in front of Jesus who knows you better than you could ever know yourself and has loved you at the greatest cost to himself? As Pastor Tim Keller has written, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. Friends, the death and the resurrection of Jesus show us that we are known and loved like this. As we sang on Good Friday, when we were sinking down, Christ laid aside his crown to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. When he rises and ascends to heaven, he is going to his rightful place in the Father's presence. I believe that the resurrection is true, that it has cosmic implications, But if it's true, it also has implications for you and for me today, here, in the midst of all our daily challenges, our broken relationships, our work, our failures. Because of what we see here today, we can know that Jesus is alive and he is not finished with you. And some Something I love about these passages, these stories after Jesus is risen from the dead. He's finished with sin and with death, but he's not finished with his disciples. He's moving towards them, questioning them, naming them, that they might come and know him and his love. That's why we proclaim he is risen. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Please join me in prayer. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the death and the resurrection of Jesus that defeats death and ushers us into your kingdom. We come to you this morning just as we are in all our brokenness and sin and doubts and failures. We don't come to you as as strong disciples who are boasting about what we have done, but we come to you in weakness and in need, uh, asking you to comfort us in our tears and in our grief, to reveal yourself to us, to allow us, each one of us, to hear you speak our name and to know that you love us and that you are with us. We thank you for the great promises of the gospel that assure us that These things are true, that Jesus is alive, and we ask that you would work in us in such a way that we might uh, follow him and proclaim his name. 
and give you the glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.